0: Back to the Ed Morrissey Show, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about a great new film that you really should be watching, uh, Father Stu, starring uh, Mark Wahlberg, with an especially good performance by uh, Mel Gibson as uh, Father Stuart Long's uh, own father in this film. Great film, just coming out. You should be watching it. Here to join us, here, here to discuss that. Is uh, someone who knew Father Stuart Long very well. Father Bart Tolleson is with us, and uh, Father Tolleson, thank you so much for taking the time to do this.
1: Hi, good to be here, Ed.
0: So tell us a little bit about uh, how you knew Father Stuart Long, and 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 um, you know how uh, you know how you came to how you came to know who he was and what his story was.
1: Yeah. So Stu and I, I was a seminarian for the Diocese of Dallas, in the middle of seminary some family uh, had moved up to montana and my folks bought a place in montana so i discerned that i would like to become a seminarian for the diocese of helena so in the middle of that discernment i got in touch with uh, Stu long who was the seminarian for the diocese and we started emailing back and forth and he gave me some advice and then eventually when i was accepted as a seminarian i met him uh not too soon thereafter in the uh, summer of 2006 we met face to face and uh, we became friends pretty quickly, and we were in the same ordination class, uh, which means we were on, on the same schedule to be our day, and though we were in two different seminaries, and we kind of kept up that way.
0: So I'm sure you've seen the movie by this point in time. I've seen the movie. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I love a good redemption story, Father. I um, you know I'm Catholic, so I love a good redemption story. And, you know, Easter season's great for that. And by the way, happy Easter to you and, and, to, your, and to your congregation nice. as well. But, um, you know, normally you hear redemption stories and they tend to get prettied up a little bit, especially when they're Hollywoodized, right? <laughs> because you don't want to make people too unsympathetic. Um, this is, I think, maybe the first R-rated redemption story, you know, involving, you know, sort of faith-based cinema. And I mean, for a good reason. I mean, it's, it's, it's authentic. It's, it's, it's uh, apparently very authentic to Father, uh, Father Stu's uh, life. Um, But I think that that speaks to where a lot of people are in redemption. And I think that's one of the values of having this film,
1: right? I think so. You know, the first really rated R redemption story was Passion of the Christ. Well, that's true. Yes. Yeah, Uh, very,
0: very very true. And then,
1: of course, uh, I think if it hadn't been for that film, they would have been maybe more reticent to go forward with particularly the language that gives it more authenticity, but makes it rated R. But uh, it's, yeah you know, it's a, it's a good time. I think Sony recognized it's a good time for a good Catholic redemption story. Stu's story is very unique because he is really one of those characters that came full, you know, 180. I mean, he was an agnostic, kind of made fun of religion, lived a rough life, got into a lot of fights in the ring and outside the ring. And, uh, you know, lived with a woman and did whatever the world said you should do and you know kind of enjoyed his life and then god just gave him some events to make him look up and inside you know i i was i was
0: kind of struck by it, it to some extent sort of like the parallel to um augustine although i think augustine resisted longer i think father Stu responded to uh to his calling as a christian uh, when it came but i don't I mean, know
1: Stu resisted for for about eight years <laughs> oh okay well there you go <laughs> yeah.
0: So maybe, maybe it was closer to that. Maybe it is sort of a modern, um, I don't want to say retelling because this is clearly Father Stu's own story, but I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a modern parallel to that. And and again, a a parallel to the way a lot of us approach, uh, redemption in Christ.
1: Yeah. Uh, Stu, you know, he took, uh, he just kind of stayed away from it and, um, you know, finally, with that motorcycle accident, again, the invitation to, to to consider faith before he had rejected them time and time and again. And at this, and this time, because of his broken body and something that happened interiorly, he said, I'll give it a try. And he got serious about it. And when he was baptized, he also felt like he had the call to the priesthood. And he spent another good long while, I don't know exactly, you know, eight to 10 years or so kind of run away from that call that kept coming up in his life over and over again till eventually he just, he said enough, I'll go where God wants me to go.
0: And that's very interesting because I mean, when you commit things to film, it's a two hour format, you know, basically for most, most films, two hours max. So you have to compress time. You have to compress some storyline. So in the, in the film, it kind of happens one on top of the other but in in his in his life this took a while for him to to really discern this call properly
1: it took a while for him to even respond to the call and then not after that he began the process of discerning so he'd kind of been running away from the call particularly to the priesthood for for a good long while and uh, had dated different women and and trying to find someone that would talk him out of it and and finally there was i think a woman that kind of talked him into it and um, he quit his good job and started working at a catholic school in california moved in with a couple of catholic guys hung out with catholic guys got involved in pro-life work and some other things like that and um, still didn't really get serious about the 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 priestly call until a couple of his friends one day drug him to hear father benedict rochelle and hearing father benedict for the first time it just hit Stu right between the eyes and after that he quickly made Moves to go join Father Benedict's order in New York City. And after a couple of years of that, getting a master's at a, a Franciscan university in Steubenville, that didn't work out. The, the friars said, Well, you, you've got some potential, but not here. <laughs> You're pretty, I don't know if it was stubbornness or too set in his ways or too much of a wild card, but uh, they did encourage Stu to, to go and pursue diocesan. So Stu went back to Helena, his hometown and connected with the bishop. And from there, uh, the bishop put him at Mount Angel Seminary to become a diocesan priest. And then after that, he really was laser focused on that that call and that determination to become a diocesan priest for Helena.
0: Well, I think, you know, obviously, the the again, you can only tell so much in a two-hour story, and there was a lot to tell. Um, but I think that that part of the story is equally interesting, right? Because I think that there's sort of this, popular misconception probably not quite as much among catholics who who should know better um that you know the seminaries are so desperate that they'll reach out to anybody et cetera. Et cetera. i mean they're, they're, discerning is in is on both sides of that and i think it's very um i think it's revealing that the franciscans at steubenville um what were, were very specific about how they were discerning his his track and and still encouraging him to seek out the priesthood, but through a different, uh, you know, through a, a different window, if you were a different door, if you will. I mean, you're, you're certainly a priest. You've certainly been through this. This how this works. I I, I think that that's more typical than than maybe people realize in this uh, in this sort of mutual discernment process.
1: Well, I think just because of the recent history and of the Church of the United States, there's there's more uh, attention paid to priestly candidates. Certainly it started uh, when I was a seminary and uh, they were looking at things very specifically and uh, trying to ra- raise the bar, so to speak. And right. Stu, you know, when the friars in New York said no, he still believed he had a call. He was disappointed, but uh, um, he uh, lived, he lived his faith authentically and no one could argue with that. Now in seminary, sometimes he challenged ideas he did not agree with. <laughs> <laughs> and because he never backed away from a fight, he never backed away from an intellectual argument either, ever. And sometimes I think that, you know, people say, well, he's not flexible enough. He's, he's too myopic. He's too narrow-minded. And I think that was perhaps one strike against him in the seminary, though um, he authentically lived out the practice of the faith. And he encouraged his brothers in seminary from the stories I've heard to, to really lift them up to uh, – to challenge them, but to also uh, encourage them to be good priests in training as well.
0: So this brings me to a point in the, a, about the movie. And we're, I don't want to give away too many spoilers because I want people to see the movie. But, there, you know, the movie, again, depicts some conflict between uh, Father Stu and some of the other seminarians. One of these gets resolved very late in the film. Um, I wouldn't say a whole bunch, you know, it's, but there's some... Uh, resistance at the seminary which i think must be sort of a, a telescoping of what happened at uh Steubenville um uh to some degree uh, is that accurate i mean i guess you're telling me at least in, in part it's accurate because this is this is a man who uh who defended his own uh perspective um but uh, i mean you know, i
1: don't Right. Specifically, yeah. I don't know if it's literally accurate. I'm sure that there, there are guys that uh, Stu went head to head with in the seminary. But uh, I think in terms of like try, trying to take this whole guy's career, I mean, a good seminarian, even in Steubenville, he did very well. Um, but also kind of not, not the typical mold of a seminarian guy. And sometimes that rubs people the wrong way, yeah. both in seminary and even in his priesthood. And so you have these guys that are close to Stu, that are seminarians with him, that are priests with him, that are friends of his, and you have other stories about how he butted heads here and there. And so you're trying to look, take all of these characters and say, well, how can we tell the story? Well, let's, let's just focus it on two characters, two characters that, are, that he gets to know in the church and they go to seminary with him. And that that will be the best way to tell the story. So that's what they did. I think it works. i mean in terms of literal in this it not necessarily but in terms of yeah these things happen these themes i I think they they got it right right and
0: i think that again i mean uh, sometimes people get a little tripped up on historicity when it comes to you know uh, biography film uh, film biographies and again because the format the, the format is very restrictive you have to you have to tell the stories that matter and, and I think that this film really does tell the stories that matter. I, I think that, um, you know, so much of his life was, uh, was of interest in this, that perhaps his priesthood actually gets a little too telescoped. And I'm kind of curious because obviously you knew him. Tell us a little bit about his priesthood. Uh, you, you get a sense that he got a big response. Um, and... Um, you know, how was how was Father Stu as a priest? How was he with his uh, with, with the parishioners, those that um, had the um, opportunity to work with him?
1: Yeah, I, they did telescope his priesthood. I think the, the point of the movie was to say, you know, it's named Father Stu. So, you know, he's going to become a priest. Right. And that's kind of the, the goal of the film in terms of the, the narrative. And it was a goal of Stu's life. But then after that, you know, he wasn't finished. Of course, he's ordained with this uh, terminal disease. And uh, everyone knew that, so they knew this was going to be a unique priesthood. Um, he went back, uh, after we were ordained, he was assigned back to the Indian Reservation, where he had served as a seminarian and as a transitional deacon, and um, did well there, but began to, to struggle, had a few falls, and there were some concerns, so they moved him to a single-level rectory where he could uh, do more. And he also was able to get, uh, that's his father, Bill, started helping him sleeping on the floor of the rectory, doing all kinds of things for him. And we also enlisted uh, a a few others, one particular young man to uh, help Stu. And um, at that point, but then it just, it even then it it got to be too much to the point when the doctor said, you really need to be in a wheelchair full time. Then they moved him back to Helena to Big Sky, which you see in the film. Now, when he got to Big Sky, I can remember going in just a day or so after he moved in, I said, Stu, what are you gonna do? And he was like, I I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he was playing video games and i was like you know what i, I got him going on uh where i was assigned I, he came over and helped me at my parish we were able to to accommodate him very very well at the, at the church i was assigned to and then i uh, got him going at the nursing home celebrating mass and then from there um people people just word of mouth hey there's this incredible priest over there a big guy. so what started off is like the first you know maybe year he wasn't so busy you know, you could pretty much get him at any time, uh, year after year, he got more and more popular to the last couple of years of his life and his priestly ministry. There were lines every day down the hall to see to father Stu, because he, he delivered his priesthood in a, with an authentic way that just hit you between the eyes. And he told it to you like it was, he had a great sense of humor until the end. He was joyful. But uh, he was straight with you, and he didn't let you beat around the bush. And he challenged you. And people liked that, and they were like, I can't argue with this guy. He's in a wheelchair. He's he's as broken as anybody, and yet his love for God is is the most powerful, powerful that I have ever seen. So it really was a living testimony, and that's why people kept coming.
0: Well, and I guess you can even say that there's a parallel here to John Paul II, right? St. John Paul II, who— who really persevered um through the latter well two decades really of his life um with a you know uh, with parkinson's disease which you know physically incapacitated him but mentally and spiritually you know it was was very strong and i think that there is a powerful kind of testimony that goes with that and um i, I guess you can maybe tell us if father Stu was uh, thinking of those parallels as he was as he was uh, living out this life, or if it was just something that was natural to him because he was just such a fighter.
1: Well, I mean, Stu loved uh, John Paul II, and um, he was devoted to John Paul II mainly because of just his his incredible work, uh, you know, theologically. And mm-hmm. so, I know when Stu was first diagnosed, and there was some concern about whether or not he would be ordained at the priesthood. There was a prayer written, I think, by his godfather uh to for the intercession of john paul ii it was before even uh, john paul was a saint uh was canonized and so that prayer went around and a lot of people prayed it but i think in the fact that Stu didn't get a physical healing he certainly got an interior healing right that uh he saw i mean I you couldn't help but make the comparison that john paul ii carried his disease he was determined until the end Stu had that same determination and uh Certainly, Stu would always encourage the intercession of the saints, both canonized and those he felt for sure would be saints. And so, John Paul II was certainly in that group uh, uh, for intercession.
0: So, um, again, we're uh, we're speaking with Fa- uh, Father Bart Tolleson, and, and 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 Father, I mean, you're you were a friend of Stu's. You I, you've seen the movie. Do you think that the, the movie really hit the mark? Do you think Mark Wahlberg really hits the mark in portraying your friend, um, not just your colleague, but your but your friend?
1: Uh, you know, when you first see it, when I first saw uh, parts of the film, you know, I just laughed because it was like seeing these Hollywood stars play these individuals, Stu and Bill and and Kathleen, it was just, it was funny to see on the on screen. But after a while, I, I was trying to, you know, step away from it and say, what is it they're trying to do? Right. And they're trying to tell this incredible story and hit all the beats of Stu's life, particularly at least until... He's ordained a little bit after his priesthood hit those beats and, and demonstrate why this guy is an incredible guy and why his life is important and i think they did it. It, it it was uh you know it's not literal but there are many things that that you know things he went through that they really got right and that was pretty impressive and the way uh, uh Rosalind was able to distill certain long periods of Stu's life into like just a moment on screen or just with a few lines I thought was uh, was very good, well done.
0: Well, I, I, and look, I mean, I think that, um, I, I think it's going to uh, inspire a lot of people. And I think that Father Stu was already inspiring a lot of people known locally. Uh, I think this gives us an opportunity for all of those who never got a chance to uh, go to confession with Father Stu or, or to talk with Father Stu or, or to receive the sacraments from Father Stu. It gives us a chance to, to get to know him as well and uh, i think that's going to be tremendously valuable um ha- have you talked to people in 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 your community who've seen it and, and how how are they responding i and i do take your point about kind of laughing because you know these people and you you know them in real life and there's obviously going to be yeah. a little bit of difference but uh how, how are people in your community responding to the film
1: you know i think for the most part very positively uh it, you know i remember the 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 premiere they had in helena a few weeks back i mean that Theater was packed with everyone knew Stu. So it was like, I told them, I said, this is your toughest crowd right here. <laughs> and let's see how you do, because, uh, you know, they they knew Stu. And, and and I was quite pleasantly surprised how many of them, like myself, just took it very positively and thought that they did a good job and realized this is a very complicated story to tell. And to distill it down the way they did, I, I felt like they brought honor to, to Stu's legacy, and that was a good thing. There are a few that aren't happy with it uh, that knew Stu pretty well. And that uh, I, I, doesn't surprise me because everyone has a different interpretation. But sure. for the most part, in his hometown, it's been very positive.
0: Um, how does uh, how does his, his family, uh, I, I think his father's been doing some of the promotion, right? So most yeah. they, they must yeah. be pretty satisfied with uh, with how it's turned out.
1: Oh, you know, I mean, poor Bill and Stu's family. They've walked with this <laughs> thing for a long while because yeah. it's been in development for you know six and a half years almost seven years this uh, when we get to this summer and so you know it's like is this ever going to happen etc cetera, etc cetera. and then all the false starts and bad scripts or you know unacceptable scripts I think to finally get to, to a place where they feel like you know th- they got it right uh, maybe not literally but got it right somewhat I remember I was watching one scene with Bill and he kind of looks at me and goes well I don't remember doing that <laughs> I, like, I don't remember you doing that either but we both, he said it really well. Bill said, you know, we go about it two different ways, the, the, the film stew and the real stew, but we get to the same place in the end. And I thought that was a great summation.
0: That is a great summation, and I think we're going to leave it there. Father Bart Tolleson, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time, especially this this in the octave of Easter. I we was just mentioning it to him right before we started recording this, that this is like the busiest time to, to bother a priest with this stuff, and it is, I really do appreciate you spending some time with us today.
1: All right, Ed. Uh, good to be with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Stay tuned for more from The Ed Morrissey Show. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining me again is Sarah Stockner. She is running for Texas Railroad Commissioner. She is in a uh, runoff election. I keep wanting to say recall and it's wrong. It's a runoff election on May 24th uh, against a crowded field, uh, forced the incumbent into a runoff. Sarah, congratulations on that. That is in itself quite a uh, quite a victory for you
2: yeah thank you i I feel good you know i think statistically speaking when you have a statewide candidate like this that doesn't win outright in the primary they usually lose in the runoff so (laughs) If history is any indication of success, I feel good. And I also feel good from all the feedback that I've been getting. You know, people have been digging into him. They realize he doesn't have any substantive oil and gas experience and that he's a career long politician. And I think people realize that the position is too important to have it be politicized.
0: Right, and just for those who who are not in Texas, those who may have missed Sarah's first appearance here on the Ed Morrissey Show, um, the Texas Railroad Commission is an extremely important position, um, extremely important uh, agency in the state. It, um, it runs oil, natural gas, and, and other energy uh, initiatives. And so we're responsible for regulating it and making sure it's operating properly. Um, it is an elected position. It's a very important elected position that is, doesn't have a lot of cognates in other states. This is somewhat of an unusual um, elected position for Texas. And um, right now, uh, Sarah Stockner is running against, uh, it's Wayne Christian. I I got the name correct, right?
2: Yes.
0: Yeah. Wayne Christian, who is a longtime incumbent and who failed to get to 50% plus one in the primary, Republican primary, which is itself rather surprising. And I think it does show that people here in Texas are actually serious about looking for a change, or at least taking a change under consideration. So Sarah is now the one and only candidate running against Wayne Christian on in the May 24th runoff. And so you've got about a month to go. How's the uh, campaign going for you?
2: Yeah, it's going really good, you know. I'm I'm making my way through the state. I'm in north of Austin tonight in Round Rock. Tomorrow I'm in El Paso. Wednesday I'm back in San Antonio. Thursday, Oof. Friday uh, Corpus Christi Houston. So it's, um, it's a busy few weeks, but it's the home stretch and I'm feeling good.
0: And, uh, and Sarah, just to remind everybody, you know, you have a, a fairly extensive background in the, uh, oil and, uh, gas exploration extraction, um, business. You've been working as an attorney in this field for, is it 15 years now that you've been working as an attorney in this field?
2: Almost. Yep. I graduated law school at 08. And so I've been representing energy companies in risk allocation and then suing insurance companies when bad stuff happens and insurance companies don't want to pay because it's cheaper for lawyers to fight than it is to pay the claim. Um, And so when I moved out onto the cattle ranch last summer and had issues, I realized the only way you could fix it is from within. So I'm not accepting any campaign contributions. I'm running on actual substantive issues. You know, one third of the Texas economy is from the oil and gas industry. It's a vital part of the Texas economy and the U.S. economy, as we're seeing with turmoil in Russia. Right. And as we see uh, a shift in Wall Street money and federal policy, all of those are coming into play and impacting pricing and As crazy as it is, the oil and gas industry doesn't want $5 a gallon gas either, right? Like everything increases cost-wise for them as well. So uh, we've got important issues, but we've got things like earthquakes that we need to address and groundwater contamination. And if we do it right, we can be clean. Natural gas is one of the cleanest sources of energy that we have, but we've got to do it the right way.
0: Right. And I think that this is one of the... um it's a lot more complicated. This is a lot more complicated than just drill more or stop drilling, right? Um, and, and I think that this is an area that gets a little too simplistic. Uh, now, I think that there's good reasons to want to have an elastic, dynamic uh, domestic supply of both o- uh, oil and natural gas so that when you run into crises, like what we're seeing uh, with Russia and Ukraine, or frankly, you know, Russia over the last few years, Iran over the last few years, you wanna keep oil prices low, low, lower anyway, in order to keep them from um, using profits and pouring them into uh, more nefarious things. Um, but at the same time, like you said, you know, we also have to live in these areas where we're <laughs> doing this uh, sort of work. And so it becomes more complicated. It's, it's, a, it's a complex balance that has to take place. Um, and obviously you're running, because you feel that that balance has been out of whack for a while here in the state of texas
2: yeah i I think it's pretty well documented that most texans don't know that the railroad commission regulates oil and gas and not railroads And at this point, I think it's intentional, right? Like there's no reason for the establishment to change the name when it would be like, I always make the analogy of Wall Street electing the Securities and Exchange Commission and calling it the Banana Commission or something that's completely unrelated to what they're actually regulating.
0: It really should be the Texas Energy Commission is what it should be. Um, It's just evolved from the Railroad Commission, which is... I think in about, what, 130 years ago or so here in Texas? Late 1800s.
2: Yeah.
0: So it's just just evolved. They've just never updated the name, but it really should be the Texas Energy Commission because that is really what they're regulating here in the state. Um, So I I did want to talk to you a little bit about uh, Joe Biden's uh, decision to really reverse himself and allow more leases to be sold. He's also increasing the price of uh, the royalties off of that. it was a mixed bag, right? I mean, part of this is good news in that at least they're going to start uh, allowing some other uh, land to be leased out, which they had previously refused to do. But in other senses, it may not change a lot because they're still putting the same restrictions, at least as far as I've seen. They're still keeping the same restrictions that Biden placed uh, on, on that process in its Executive Order 13990, uh, you've got the higher royalty um, the higher royalty rate which is going to increase the cost of doing this. I think he kind of hit that sweet spot where everybody's kind of angry at over this. Um, do you see this as really a step forward in terms of uh, stepping up production and if so, where are the opportunities to do that?
2: yeah well look first of all for those listening that are in texas there's no federal lands in texas so i won't have any jurisdiction over this just fyi we're just talking general policy exactly yes and look i think i think the problem is is it's it's been inconsistency in messaging and when he came into when he came into office two years ago and said we're going to end the oil and gas industry. That doesn't give us a warm fuzzy feeling. And although we knew that we were indispensable as an industry, Wall Street's been saying, "You guys need to clean up your act. We're not going to, we're not going to loan or or invest in in oil and gas." And so it's made it much harder to get the actual capital needed to drill. So it's really a two prong thing. One, we need our politicians to stop using common sense energy policies as a bipartisan. Political issue. It shouldn't be. It should be more of a national defense beyond right politics. Um, and the the other issue is we've got to get the Wall Street and the funding more comfortable because it it it's a reality where you got to follow the money. And if there's no money, they can't drill. So regardless of however many leases he opens up, if we don't get. The Wall Street on board, it's kind of irrelevant.
0: Well, and this is part of another issue, right? And I think this is another part that is is vastly misunderstood. Is that people look at you know like Exxon Mobil and Shell and you know BP and some of these things and and look at the uh, the gross dollars of their profits or even sometimes just the the gross dollars of their net profits without looking the at margins. what the, the margins, right? But I mean, that's one that's one thing. I want you to talk about the margins, but. The other issue is that it's not just, you know, when you talk about gas and oil companies, you're not just talking about BP or ExxonMobil or, or Shell or Gulf or whatever. You're talking about a lot of smaller companies that are also in this business whose margins in, in some ways are even tighter than Right. Uh, We're than
2: talking, that. right. We're talking two, three percent um and of of profit right for the profit margin so yes they're making billions but they if you look at how much they did that's that's really small margins we should be if we're going to be angry at somebody go and be angry at people selling bottled water right i mean you look at right (laughs) right that's where we're really insane so um yeah it's not this it's not this innate greediness and it's a misunderstanding of how the market works and the the heart and soul of the oil and gas industry especially in texas is smaller operators and that's why i want to get in there and make sure that the regulations are accurately and fairly applied not just who's making big huge campaign contributions to PACs. And to the politicians directly, like that's pay to play, and we got to, We can do be better than that,
0: right? And and Sarah, I mean, my, my point on this is that there just really isn't a ton of of cash that's floating around. Even even with gas at this high high of a price, there's not a ton of cash that's just floating around that you can just oh well, they made ten billion dollars this year. They they can plow it into into the leases and exploration. It's not really how this works. Right. And uh, you know, especially for some of the smaller independent operators out there, you do need investors uh, to to put that money up front. And uh, and when you're looking at the the price of gas, it looks like people are making money hand over fist. But the the problem is that it's more expensive to get to the to the retailers because it's more expensive coming out of the refiners because it's more expensive for them to do that work. This is not just um Windfall
2: profits right yeah. right so that the democratic agenda of saying we're just going to take all these as windfall profits and tax them is pretty ridiculous
0: right right it's it really is a over a vast oversimplification of a very complicated industry and again it's one of the reasons why it matters when who the regulators are in each of these well at the federal level it matters matters greatly uh but also in, in the states and and again most states I don't think actually have elected regulators Texas does. So we'll bring it back to the to the runoff election because I know that we really want to talk about that with you is uh, is is the necessity of having somebody in there who understands the nuts and bolts of this because it's it re- does really require uh some expertise to help calculate what is effective regulation as opposed to what is over and under regulation and we you know we're Republicans. So we talk about overregulation all the time. So I'll ask you this: What is what are the risks of underregulation in Texas in, in regards to um, energy policy?
2: Right. So what I'm afraid of right now is that if we don't clean house internally within the state of Texas, that the feds come in and they take back their delegation. So they've delegated their authority to protect groundwater and air and all these environmental things through the state's regulatory agencies, the Railroad Commission, the TCEQ, right? Like all of these different entities have various responsibilities that have been delegated. And if we don't properly manage it, then the state of Texas won't have jurisdiction over the 50,000 injection wells. We'll have 50,000 holes in the ground that you can't do anything with because I think we only have something like 21, not thousand, 21 total federally permitted injection wells. Right. So right. all of those are made through state delegation. And if the state doesn't enforce it properly and the feds come in, because it, we've seen that before in jails and things like this, right? Where they, they, And in Oklahoma, they shut down their injection because they didn't get their earthquakes under control. So I hope, look, there's lots of great experts that work within the agency. I don't wanna come in and change the personnel, right? Like they're just trying to do their jobs. I wanna come in and bring the intellectual honesty that says, look, the regulations that we have on the book are sufficient. Let's actually enforce them fairly, predictably, and let's enable and empower the staff that's already there that actually are already understands all the field operations. That's already out there that already knows who the bad operators are, right? They're just right. not empowered because from the top down, there's pressure for favors and for, you know, give and for not calling attention to bad stuff. And instead we've got to actually penalize the bad operators so that the good operators can continue doing what they're doing and that the bad operators, it's no longer profitable to be lying cheating and stealing and that's right. that's the problem
0: all right so tell us about what's coming up on your calendar i know that tonight and this is prior to the we're going to publish this on on thursday's show but i know that you're going to be in round rock you mentioned that at the very uh, top of the interview um uh, what else do you have on your schedule that you're you're looking forward to maybe over the upcoming uh weekend where people can find you and and come out and listen to you talk and perhaps debate some of these topics
2: yeah, so actually this Sunday, I'm gonna be in Houston at the Harris County Family GOP picnic. Um, and huh? if people wanna see my schedule, they can go to Sarah4rc.com, the or they can scan the little QR code that's actually on my background right there, and it'll take them to it. And uh, it has my events, and you'll see a schedule um, when I'm in your area and I'd love to meet you. And look, I'm very accessible. So if people have questions, feel free to reach out to me. I'm the TikTok lawyer. I'm the TikTok lawyer, I can't. (laughs) I'm the unicorn lawyer on TikTok and it's Sarah for RRC on Twitter and you can direct message me on Twitter.
0: Sarah for RRC on Twitter, at Sarah for RRC on Twitter. Sarah for RRC.com is her website. And yeah. and again, that's where you can find out all the different things that are going on. And again, if you're in Texas, the runoff date is May 24th. Uh, that is coming up fast, folks. So it you, is. Know, you have to be prepared for this. I mean, I, I voted in my first Texas election um, uh, this year. So this is now going to be my first runoff election, I guess. Yeah. Uh,
2: and, so there's, and don't forget, there's some municipal elections on May 7th. So people oh. are going to be thinking, "Wow, we've been to the polls several times, but please keep at it. Every vote counts."
0: Hey, every vote counts, and um, uh, this is this is why we have the franchise. So yeah. this is this is how we become a responsible, self-governing entity, and um, we want to make sure it stays that way. So, uh, Sarah Stockner, thank you so much for being with us today. And again, uh, Sarah for RRC.com is the website, and uh, well, hopefully we'll get a chance to uh, touch base with you before the before the actual runoff date.
2: Awesome.
0: Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Sarah. And stay tuned for more from The Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Welcome back to The Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me today is Phil Kirpin, President of American Commitment. That's AmericanCommitment.org. And he is uh, a man who has... Plenty of analysis on lots of different topics. Uh, last week, uh, they uh, Phil has uh, Phil had a study out uh, that showed the effects of masking uh, in uh, school districts and which which school districts had the most uh, school disruptions and what the impact was from that. Uh, Phil, first off, welcome back. Always great to talk to you. But I. I was not shocked to see the results of this. I was shocked that it didn't get more coverage though.
3: Well, it's really interesting, right? Because the entire winter we probably heard about a billion times from the Department of Education and the CDC and their various, you know, state and local equivalents. That if you wanted your kids to stay in school, then you had to mask them, and masks were gonna keep schools open. And if you don't like mask mandates, you're gonna hate school closures more. So put the masks on. And they said this as if it were received wisdom, and they said it over and over and over again. And you know, we're now we're now here in April, and you know, we did have a lot of closures around the country in January and February, although, you know, a fraction obviously of what we had the year before and so you would think somebody would check their work maybe they'd come out and say wait here's what actually happened here's why we were right or here's how we were wrong and i kind of thought it was curious that they never did anything like that they never told anyone what actually happened they were extremely confident in their predictions uh, but they never came back around to say and here's what actually happened here's what the data shows uh, occurred in january and february so we decided uh, to do the work that the CDC and the Department of Education never did, which is to answer the question: you know, what actually happened this winter with school closures? And did the mask districts have fewer closures or did they have more? And as it turns out, they had more. They had more closures than the mask-mandated districts. And we were able to get a hold of a data set uh, from a company called Burbio that tracks school closures and mask policies very, very closely. It covers the 500 largest school districts in the country by enrollment. So it's a little less than half of all of the school kids in the country, it basically covers all of the urban and suburban districts of any significant size. Um, and what we were able to find from looking at this data is that actually the mask mandated districts closed at a pretty significantly higher clip. 35% of mask mandated school districts had some kind of disruption, closure and or, or remote instruction in January or February versus just 11% of non-mask man- mandate districts and if you looked at it in terms of the percentage of total student learning days that were lost the difference was even greater it was a little over three percent of total student student learning days uh that were disrupted lost uh, to closure in the mask mandated districts versus 0.75 um in the non-mask mandate districts. so it was four times the Number of student days lost uh, as a percentage of all student days in the mask mandated versus the uh, mask optional districts. So I think that's a pretty definitive failure uh, for the confident assertion that we got, you know, from the Department of Education and the CDC that masks would keep schools open. It seems that if there's any connection at all, it was the opposite. that Masks closed schools, and I don't think it's because you know, masks made people get more COVID or anything like that. But I think that if you keep people on edge, if you keep people panicked and scared, then when you get into winter and you inevitably have uh, the COVID outbreaks that you're going to have, you're more likely to get the panic reaction of a closure uh, than you are in a place that's been more normal. And so I think that's probably uh, why we had those results.
0: You know, Phil, I mean, being a data guy, whenever I hear, you know, um, gross numbers or percentages and all that kind of thing, I was, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm skeptical, but I always like to understand what the scales are, right? Just because I know I, I've worked with data for for decades now, in, in various different applications, and I think that I like the um, the student closure days measure best because it it eliminates the population issue. Because I would imagine that when you're looking at this data set, and it's one aspect that I was thinking about. There are probably a lot there were probably a lot more districts that were mask mandated than weren't. And so one of the things that it's about two-thirds, yeah. Yeah, that's about right. two-thirds. So when you're looking at that, um, you know, the first thing you look at is, well, there's a more robust data set among the mask mandated school districts than there might be with the non-mask mandated school districts. First off, two-thirds, one-third isn't too bad. I mean, that's not a big disparity anyway. But the I the idea of drilling it down to percentages I think but even better the student you know the the lost student days measure I think really drills down to a um, a way to compare this while eliminating some of those um, so the some of the uh, data anomalies here I mean do you do you do you sense that as well do you think that that's really the 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 most solid uh, comparative measure that comes out of this study
3: I think so. You know, for, first of all, I think the uh, the fact that we limited the scope of the analysis—the 500 largest school districts uh, on the front
0: end—also yes.
3: prevents a, a lot of potential issues. Because you know, first of all, just from data availability, we kind of had to do that, but. Even if we had data on a lot of the, you know, the, the tiny rural districts around the country and something like that, I think there's so many dissimilarities that it becomes very difficult to, you know, get any kind of meaningful information out of that. So just doing the largest school districts, the 500 largest, I think uh, from the start uh, makes it a much sounder basis for comparison. And then of course, you know, to answer the question of did mass actually help keep schools open you really do want to compare kind of on an overall percentage of disrupted days basis so i do think that's the best metric and it was uh, my, my partner on this project josh stevenson came up with that and uh, he actually allowed for change within the study period so it, it's the based on the mask policy the week prior to a closure and so there was some change although not a lot of change actually over the two months uh, in terms of uh, mask policy changes so he was able to capture all of that by doing this methodology and the other thing is um, of course, you know, the closures in some places were just a couple of schools. In other places, it was an entire school system. And so you really wanted to be able to differentiate the number of students who were affected. And uh, doing the percentage of student days allows us to capture that very effectively also and to weight everything kind of on a, on a level playing field basis. So I think that's yeah. probably the best number. And as I said, it was about four times um, the percentage of student Learning days that were disrupted in the mask mandated districts versus not masked. Although I would point out, and I think this is really important because I, I try not to be a bad news guy, I try to when I can be a good news guy. We were talking about three percent of student days lost in the masked districts versus 0.75% in the not masked in January and February, you know, compared to a year earlier where it was probably 50% or 60%, right. just some yeah. enormous number. So really every place made an enormous amount of progress in terms of keeping schools open in the winter, regardless of the local factors and the political pressures and everything else. Uh, but the masks don't appear to have been uh, a help in that regard. And uh, it really was a matter more than anything of you know, just the decision if you wanted to keep schools open you you basically were able to do so you know with some exceptions you do have some absenteeism in some places that forced closures and that kind of thing but those were relatively isolated they were short they didn't affect large numbers of people and so you know if you decide that you want your schools to be open COVID, in terms of actually causing absenteeism and and, uh, short staffing was not really going to be a major source of disruption as much as we saw a lot of headlines about that in the context of what we saw overall this winter it was very small numbers well and phil i
0: mean you should be i mean you mentioned the fact that these are all expected outcomes i I might i might say that i'd be i was surprised that there was that much of a difference in terms of lost student days between mask mandated districts and non-mask mandated districts i would have assumed going into this that the masks would have made no difference at all so i would have expected those numbers to be pretty closely aligned
3: I'm uh, you got to understand though, Ed, You know, the places there, there's also there's a there's sort of a hidden variable here, which is politics, okay? right? I think that the places that are willing to close that were still willing to close schools, you know, proactively, not because of a staffing shortage, just because oh no, there's lots of co there's lots of covet, let's close schools. The places that were still willing to do that, which you know, the good news is they were much fewer and farther between than they were the year before but the places that were still willing to do that are the very left-wing places where there's dominant teachers unions and they were also you know pretty much certain to be masked and so i think right. that there's sort of that that you know it's not necessarily that masks drove closures it's that the psychology and the mentality of sort of the large proactive closures was really only going to exist in places that were still masking
0: well And I think so if we're looking at what the actual impact of COVID was in terms of keeping classrooms open, not necessarily keeping students in school, but keeping classrooms open. Right. Um, You got to look at the non mask mandate data on that. I mean, and, and I think we can extrapolate this backwards to what we were seeing the previous year and get an idea of just how much of that loss was unnecessary. Right, I mean, you don't have a really good
3: point. You know, if you assume that, you know, it's obviously a simplifying assumption, but if you kind of assume that, you know, the closures that happened in kind of the non-mask mandate districts were probably closures for out of practical necessity. Like they didn't have the staff, they didn't have the bus drivers, whatever it was, they had to close for those days, as opposed to it being kind of still largely a political decision in some of the mask places. And if you assume that's the case, you could say, okay, maybe the you know the actual forced closures, if you will, are somewhere around 0.75 percent of you know student learning in a win- in a really bad COVID winter like we had this past January and February. And then you kind of compare that to what we did the year before, <laughs> where it was you know probably 50 percent or more, and nearly all of that was a political decision. It was not dictated by you know by the virus and and you know the, its actual effects, um, because we had higher covid infection rates this winter than we did the previous
0: one but with a more virulent but less yeah. I mean, but m- more benign I, I don't want to call it right. benign benign is not really the right word but but a, a less uh lethal much less lethal um mm-hmm. a variant of of covid19 which is part of the context that you have to wrap into your policy yeah,
3: after, you know i think when we talk about the school disruptions it's really more about the you know, it, 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 they're really driven more by just the, the number of positive tests that come up or the number of, of infections, not so much the acuity right. because children were almost always very low acuity, you know, even with the previous versions of the virus that were much worse for older people than what we're seeing right now. And so it's, I, you know, I think it just became part of this idea of, you know, you've got, you can't allow it to spread. You can't have schools be responsible for whatever's happening in the community. And so I don't know that the severity of the different strains played into this much, you know, except to the extent, you know, that it kind of affected the broader context. Well, but I mean,
0: it should have, I mean, this, and this is part of, this is part of what I think the data is showing. First off, the data is showing, especially in non-mask mandated uh, schools. And I think that's what you have to rely on for this particular uh, takeaway, but it just shows that schools, which we already knew are not vectors for COVID-19 and are 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 not vectors for uh you know community transmission and the kids themselves don't get sick if you look at the cdc data um which is correlative by the way still not causative it's been correlated the entire time you take a look at the um at the death rates right uh, for for covid-19 among the different age groups and until you get to the omicron variant where it's entirely correlative right people you know kids that were dying had been exposed to the omicron variant but they weren't dying from covid it was zeros all the way down the line until december of last year if you take a look at the data and even with omicron correlation you're still talking about 0.03 you know um uh uh, correlation rate zero point you know one two correlation rate um school kids just simply weren't getting uh, acutely sick with this
3: well and- i like to think about it a little differently which is to say the you know the the burden of respiratory disease among children never increased during the pandemic yes uh, it's not to say that covid was completely harmless to children that's not the case it certainly resulted in hospitalizations and deaths among children but they were no greater than we see with all of the other viruses that children typically deal with. And so right. unlike with the older population, where we have this dramatic increase in the pandemic period of respiratory illness and death among children, it really was sort of a replacement effect. Yep. Uh, it replaced the other viruses that they would have otherwise had. And so there was no, there was no elevated danger for children really at any point. In the pandemic. So when we're looking at the data here, we can,
0: we can pretty much say that, Masks really didn't make a difference in terms of transmission. Masks didn't make a difference at all. in fact, had a negative impact. the The, the impulse to mandate masks, I, I should say mask mandates because we've got to be very specific about what we're measuring here. Mask mandates, um, didn't really, keep schools open in fact the the impulse to have those mandates probably uh, wasn't overcome by the mask mandates themselves in in trying to shut these things down uh, this is a failed policy right i mean this is this is an entirely failed policy when it's applied to schools
3: yeah, I think so. And uh, the disappointing thing is we've got these policymaking bodies that recommended it that show no interest in reviewing the results of their own recommendations and no interest in uh, reconsidering them. And, and, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, we're unlikely to see school mask mandates come back, I think, ahead of this election, just based on sort of political logic. Uh, but when we get into the winter again, uh, I think in the places where Democrats have the power to make the decisions, they're more likely to repeat their mistakes than they are to admit that they were mistakes. And, uh, you know, unless you force that reckoning and come with the data and really bring a lot of pressure to bear. Uh, unfortunately, I think that some of these things are going to recur and, you know, some of these places, some places, I don't know, has St. Paul lifted it or they still have masks on the kids there? Well, I wouldn't know because I don't live there anymore. <laughs> okay, well, Phil, yeah, I'm in, I'm in Texas. They might I'm, still have them on, I'm uh, in Texas, know,
0: so. man. Were, were I didn't they, know that. Congratulations! Thanks. <laughs> yeah, we well, moved here about Saint, ten months ago. So um,
3: St. Paul, and the last time I checked, was still masking kids in school. So they were one of the dead, the the, the bitter enders. Right,
0: right. And I think with the CDC guidelines the way they are, they're going to continue. If they, if they, if they are, if if that's still the case, they're probably not going to change it anytime soon either. And. I know your study doesn't address this, but let's just spend a couple of minutes talking about the potential um, detrimental impacts of masking kids in schools. I mean, there's, there's developmental impacts, there's psychological impacts, there's social impacts that the CDC doesn't really take into consideration that policymakers haven't taken into consideration. And when you look at those, which are quantifiable now i think i think there's been studies done that quantify some of these things there's just it even makes the case for mask mandating even 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 less rational
3: well look i mean i think you know before COVID, most schools would have prohibited masks uh even on halloween because they're disrupted the learning environment kids need to be able to see faces and to communicate in a normal non-disrupted way and uh, i think that the the lack of normal life for children uh, is going to have profound long-term negative consequences. And part of that is the mask mandates. And and it's and, and I think that um, for younger children in particular, there's also a major educational and developmental effect because uh, it's so important for language development and communication skills to see the face of the person you're talking to and to connect sounds with mouth movements. And so I think we're going to uh, continue to see major fallout in terms of uh, speech and language deficits in particular. Um, And that's sort of the most obvious effect. Uh, But I also think that there are broader sort of educational and social emotional harms uh, just associated with kids not having normal life normal social interaction and that's going to be a little bit more difficult um, both to kind of predict the implications of but also you know sort of to, to fix and to get out of and, and to address you know eventually uh, you would hope that you could remediate the language and communication issues although for some children it may be difficult to reach them and it may be difficult to do that uh, but these broader this broader idea of you know kids having lost years of their life that were just extremely abnormal in their social interactions, uh, that could be more challenging and more subtle in terms of its negative long-term consequences.
0: Well, and I think we're going to be dealing with that over the long term. I, I mean, you're talking about you know, an entire nation of children. Well, especially in, in in like the blue states. For instance, the red states, I think they were masking in the very first wave, right? And then you go into summer. When they came back in the fall, a lot of the red states stopped uh, masking students in school at that point. More of them joined up as the 2020-2021 school year went along, and in 2021, I think the, the you know by September of 2021, none of the red states were doing forced masking. I mean, you, they you, were like that, two yeah. different
3: universes. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's the other thing that's remarkable is you know you had you had all of these so-called experts saying you know it's very dangerous, you can't have schools without masks, and Then you say, but like half the world does, including half of this country, and they've had no they've had no adverse consequence of any significance and they they didn't want to see it they didn't want to see what was going on and you know one of the really you know i think that one of the underappreciated aspects of covid is that people who live in different areas had wildly different experiences and yet they don't necessarily No, their experience wasn't universal and so you know here in the dc area in maryland in particular you know we had the longest school closures i think anywhere in the country or maybe tied with california and you know so you had people who lost you know three quarters of a school year in many cases um but then they were happy to be back and you know even though it was masked okay we're back and they, they they didn't necessarily the parents didn't necessarily appreciate that that didn't happen everywhere and it wasn't like that and so you know i think you've got some some fragmentation in terms of how people experience these things so they don't necessarily know how different it was in other places but you know i'll tell you one of the silver linings that i expect uh and and uh you know i i think this could be the most significant silver lining out of everything related to COVID is uh, we are seeing a pushback against kind of received educational wisdom in a way uh, that's much stronger and broader than we've ever seen before in this country. Yeah. And the parents uh, who are in the places that were most affected by this stuff are, you know, a lot of them are angry and they want... Uh, They want major reforms, they want school choice programs, they want uh, control over their local school board, they're concerned about curriculum that they saw for the first time when they were looking at a computer over their kid's shoulder, and so there are a lot of broader positives, I think, in terms of kind of the backlash that we've seen on education and kind of holding that coalition together to push for some some broader uh, changes is going to be important uh, as the COVID stuff finally eases out, even in the blue areas, Um, but I think that's going to be a silver lining, and then I think the other silver lining is we're potentially going to have a generation of kids that uh, grow up to be the most skeptical generation of government authority right. in this, this country. And I think that could be a very helpful thing as well.
0: Could be a very helpful thing. I, I will tell you what, I, if I was a, if I was a social science um, analyst, you know, which, you know, I kind of am just being in politics, but I mean, if I was somebody who was you know involved in, you know, the, the research end of social science, I'd be sharpening my pencils and, and, and getting my plans ready for studies of the differential uh, outcomes uh, of children, especially those that were in elementary and middle schools yeah. uh, during the during the mask mandates and looking at your data and then tracking what the performance levels were going to be when they got into higher education, because I suspect that what you're going to find is that the kids that were really forced to mask up and do remote learning more often are going to be less able to integrate socially into those higher education settings. They're going to be less able to compete in those. And you're going to see a really big differential um, impact uh, where the uh, where you know, success in education is really going to be regional for a while, maybe for maybe for a 10-year period or so.
3: Well, it's, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, of course, you know, the the other sort of cross-cutting factor in that is, uh, you know, parental engagement and income level, right. and, you know, that kind of thing, because I think that you're going to see the sort of the upper income, the middle to upper income people, even if their kids were badly disrupted, they'll find a way to catch up or, you know, they'll get They'll do whatever they have to, right? Uh, but it's lower-income so, people who don't have necessarily access to, you know, enrichment resources and summer schools and special programs and so forth. Uh, that's where you're going to see the gap grow, and that's also, I think, where you're going to see uh, a potential major increase in dropouts. Because remember, a lot of high schools were closed during this, also, and people don't even necessarily know where those kids were, where they right. did during that. And, you know, I think that relates also to the increase we've seen in crime and drugs and just a lot of other social pathologies. Yep,
0: yeah, and, uh, and it also reaffirms to us what we suspected all along was that the impact of this was going to be very sharply regressive. And um, and it is going to be the uh, the poor and working class kids, they're going to wind up suffering most because of this. And that's whether you're in red states or blue states, that's going to be the case, primarily, though, in blue states, because that's where most of these impacts took place. All right. Phil Kirpin is at uh, American Commitment. That's American org. You can find some of the data there and also some of the other great stuff that they're doing at American org. You should just check in there um, right now. There's a uh, Senator Rand Paul is uh, introducing uh, uh, Senate Resolution 37, which will block and ban the mandate that you must wear, uh, must wear a mask on air, airplanes and public transportation. We, we, we actually won that
3: fight uh, yesterday, as you yep. know. Um, and that's an issue we've been working on for a long time. So it was a little bit gratifying to get a victory, although, you know, we've been trying so hard to get a House vote because we were able to pass that in the Senate. Actually, eight Democrats voted for it. it's a very bipartisan Senate vote. And we've been, you know, for the last six weeks, we've been trying to get a House vote. And Nancy Pelosi is nowhere to be found. And uh, Steny Hoyer, I think, so it's "Oh, we're looking at it. We're not sure whether we're going to have a vote or not. And uh, it looks like thanks to this judge in Florida, we, we've won on that issue. But we never did get the uh, House members on the record, unfortunately.
0: Well, let's ask about that just really briefly before we let you go, Phil, because I mean, I think one of the, I, I, certainly I'm going to suspect that Rand Paul is going to agree with me on this. Um, one of the lessons here, I think, is that you want to make sure in the future that these agencies are, um, are have their authority limited upfront and very explicitly. Right. So is is there going to be room here uh, for for senator paul or you know uh, members of the house and in senate to craft a bill which makes these uh, you know takes these and makes these um much more explicit makes congress uh you know that it clarifies what congress's intent in the enabling statutes you know modifies the enabling
3: statutes i would really hope statutes. so i would yeah. really hope so i mean this is one of the big problems we have you know across really almost every policy area in the federal government is congress passes these broad vague laws and they sort of sit on the books until some agency decides it's time to, you know, enact whatever major policy uh, you know, the administration wants that day. And we've seen this with, you know, global warming policies at EPA and uh, now at the sec. And we've seen it with all the labor policies at the department of labor and the NLRB and uh, so forth. And obviously during COVID, it went to a brand new level with all the things that CDC did. And we've got kind of this backwards, system instead of the way the Constitution says it's supposed to work, where you pass a new law, a new major policy is passed with a new law that passes the House and Senate is signed by the president. We have essentially this backward system where the executive branch does almost anything unless you can somehow muster enough votes to stop them in the House and the Senate. And then if there's a veto, you need to have two thirds in the House and the Senate to stop them. And so we've sort of inverted our constitutional system. And I would really like to see a focus in Congress on slimming down all of these laws on the front end to say, you know, if you want to do X, Y, and Z, you've got to come to us for permission rather than you just do it. And we try to muster the votes to somehow stop you because I think we've really got an inversion of our, you know, constitutional system uh, when it comes to making these policies.
0: I agree. And that gets down to all sorts of issues with agency law. But that's a topic for another phil kirpin uh, appearance on the ed morrissey show because we've uh we're, we're kind of out of time on this one phil it just means you got to come back and do this uh, do this again with us ha- happy to do it <laughs> all right phil kirpin american thanks for being with us stay tuned for more from the ed morrissey show don't go anywhere Thanks for watching the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. If you like what you've seen, be sure to subscribe at the channels that you watched on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We love subscribers. More importantly, it lets everybody know that we're out there. So, again, thank you for watching. Be sure to subscribe.